0: Brothers and sisters, let's all stand together for the reading of God's Word. Continuing forward in the book of Acts, we'll be looking closely at verses 13 through 22 of chapter 4. I'll read from verse 5 through to verse 31 of chapter 4. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible Word. And it came to pass on the next day that the rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But, so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people since they all glorified God for what had been done for the man was over forty years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed and being let go they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them so when they heard that they raised their voice to God with one accord and said "Lord." You are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. So today, Peter and John are before the Sanhedrin And we see the Sanhedrin's response to what Peter has said to them, along with John. We'll see they marvel. We looked at that very closely last week. We'll see the silencing power of this healed man in their midst. Also, we'll look at the Sanhedrin's private deliberation, and then the ruling that they give. Peter and John then reply again to the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin gives them another word responding to them. And finally, the idea in the text ends with the, the ideas in this text end with the focus upon the Sanhedrin fearing the people. And we'll talk about that as well. And as usual, we'll try to examine ourselves in light of these eternal principles and see what kind of person, what kind of individual are you? What kind of person am I in light of this text? Do we walk in the spirit? Do we fold to the threats before us? Do we agree to leave the name of Jesus out of our public expression of who we are? What kind of person are you in light of today's text? So first of all, the Sanhedrin marvels. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled And they realized that they had been with Jesus. So the men of the Sanhedrin, what they're often called the elders and the chief priests, accustomed to the effectiveness of their intimidation tactics, they're surprised with Peter and John. What do they see? They see no fear in Peter or John. They see no evidence of them backing down. They have clarity of speech and they have strength of argumentation. They're courteous in their answer, as they make their defense. Their courage is present even to the extent of indicting the Sanhedrin for their part in crucifying Jesus. As they make their own defense, they actually put the Sanhedrin before God's bar. Now, the Sanhedrin tries to explain the courage, as we talked about last week. Their courage and their eloquence, how can they be such men... Because they look at them, they're looking for education, they're looking for social status, and they don't see any. Peter and John are uneducated and untrained. Remember that Greek word actually is, that word for untrained is the source of the word idiot. So they they look at Peter and John and they're singularly unimpressed with their educational background and their pedigree. So finding no answer for their ability to speak in such a fashion, they marvel. There's no answer. But then the body of the Sanhedrin realizes together that these two men had been with Jesus. That comes to mind. And the Sanhedrin remember the courage and the eloquence of Jesus. And it all makes sense. Recall we looked at the text last week of the elders and the chief priests challenging Jesus during his last week on earth. Well, his last week before his crucifixion. And Jesus stood up to them. Jesus was not intimidated by them. Jesus gave them clear and eloquent arguments that left them speechless, like what we will see in today's text. So they realized that these men had been with Jesus, and then it makes sense, because what they're experiencing here with Peter and John was like what they had experienced when they engaged with Jesus. Commentary says, We are told what made their wonder in a great measure to cease, They took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. They themselves, it is probable, had seen them with him in the temple and now recollected that they had seen them or some of their servants or those about them informed them of it, for they would not be thought themselves to have taken notice of such inferior people. But what, when they understood that they had been with Jesus, had been conversant with him, attendant on him and trained up under him, They knew what to impute their boldness to. Nay, their boldness in divine things was enough to show with whom they had had their education. We looked at this in last week's sermon, but it's worth repeating. Does your life cause others to ponder how you could be so bold and humble at the same time? So courteous and so clear? not intimidatable probably not a word but that's what it means to be with Jesus we are fearless we cannot be intimidated by the shaping forces of this world and so the question comes have you been with Jesus and if not then the alternative is you will be shaped by this world so those are the two options you have you are going to either be with Jesus Getting to know Him, loving Him, worshiping Him, and becoming like Him, and growing in that fearlessness, decreasing and being shaped by the world, or you will walk the path of being conformed to this world, like we pray before every sermon. We ask God, please do not let us be conformed to this world. That is being conformed to unbelief, to selfishness, to pride, and to death. So, those are the options. So, what's your life like? Again, the commentary says Note, those that have been with Jesus in converse and communion with him, have been attending on his word, praying in his name, and celebrating the memorials of his death and resurrection, should conduct themselves in everything so that those who converse with them may take knowledge of them that they have been with Jesus. And this makes them so holy and heavenly and spiritual and cheerful. This has raised them so much above this world and filled them with another. One may know that they have been in the mount by the shining of their faces. So I read that to us last week. But again, it's worth hearing this and considering now what does it mean today? For them, it's pretty obvious what it meant for them to be with Jesus. They were literally with Jesus. They saw him. They heard His voice, they touched Him, they ate together with Him. We, we can't have that same kind of experience. So what does it mean for us to be with Jesus? It has to do with prayer. It has to do with His Word. It has to do with worship. It has to do with fellowship. It has to do with all of the things that are the mark of the true church. Because the true church is the Bride of Christ. And what does the Bride of Christ want? to be with him, to be with him, to be with him, to enjoy him, to know him, to love him, to serve him. All right, so next, we'll note the silencing power of the healed man. The text says, And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. So motivated by maintaining their power and their wealth, the Sanhedrin would have gladly suppressed the reality of this healing if they could. If they could have, they would have denied it happened. They would have twisted it. They would have reshaped it. They would have come up with a new narrative. They wanted to suppress it. They wanted to twist it. But it's too late. So that option is behind them. But that's what they wanted to do. Let's remember, what was their response to Christ's resurrection? A much greater miracle. Now while they were going, this is from Matthew 28, this is after Christ's resurrection, now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard, so these are the ones that, who had been guarding the tomb, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. Okay, so the soldiers have come, they've informed the elders and the, the chief priests, and then the chief priests call the elders. And remember, that's the group that's described in the Sanhedrin, right? The elders and the chief priests. It's about two months or so prior to the timing of today's text that we're studying. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together. So they made a plan. They were told one thing by the soldiers about what happened. The truth. They got everybody together and they made a plan. And here's their plan. They gave a large sum of money to the soldiers saying, tell them. His disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. And until this day is sometime around A.D. 40, about 10 years after the events occurred. So it was still being propagated by these lying, conniving, deceitful, intentionally, maliciously deceitful leaders. Okay, this is the kind of people we're dealing with, okay? So they had assembled, and they had gotten together. It's an intentional deceit they concocted, using money to buy off those who knew the truth. It's about two months earlier. Also, I want us to note the collusion, the the contagious nature of this corruption, the collusion between the Jews and the Roman governor at that time. So how are they going to appease the governor? Probably with the same fistful of money that they appease the soldiers. This is the people that John and Peters are standing before. So this brings to us the question today: what level of trust should you grant to non-Christian leaders of a corrupt and tyrannical civil or church government? Zero. In fact, you should assume that they are conniving liars. Okay? That's not conspiracy theory. That's from the Bible. But they couldn't. (laughs) It was too late. The healed man stood right there in their midst. Who knows? Maybe they'd try to pay off him and his family to move to Galilee or something. We don't know. But he's in their midst. They cannot concoct a deceitful cover story at this point in time. And this speaks to this man's courage too. To even be willing to come forth and say yes. I was healed in his name. They can't bribe their way out of this difficulty. They can't lie their way out of this reality. And as a result their council's inquisition. Is actually stalled at this point. They could say nothing against it. Commentary says. The speechless perplexity of the Jewish leaders. Is a fulfillment of what Jesus had promised his followers. When he had said to them, I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. That's in Luke 21. And so Peter and John, with boldness and clarity of thought, being instructed by Jesus, having been with Jesus, they give this eloquent defense of their position, telling the truth about Jesus. And the because this healed man is in their midst, Sanhedrin's left speechless. They don't know at this moment what to do. And I think it's worth again noting the courage of this man who was healed. It's easy to read this story and not really bring him into your mind. I want you to bring him into your mind. He's there at this hearing the whole time. He's probably asked to leave in the part we're going to go through now. He's probably asked to leave with Peter and John. So, what happens next? Well, anytime you don't know what to do, you send away the people you don't want to hear, (laughs) you don't want them to hear you deliberate. You go into a secret meeting. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying. So here's the content of their secret private deliberations. What shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. There it is again. We we like to, but we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So, why did the Sanhedrin desire to deliberate privately? Uh, And I, I need to say that it is acceptable for a council like this to have private deliberations. There are times for that. If we didn't know the content of their private exchange, we'd be left to speculate why they had this private meeting, but we actually know what they said to each other. As their exchange shows us, they wanted private deliberation in order to hide their goal. What is their goal? Preventing the spread of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their goal is to stop the spread of anything having to do with Jesus. The designs of Christ's enemies are carried on in close factions, and they dig deep as if they would hide their counsels from the Lord. The enemies of Christ don't play fair. It just, just say that over and over again. The enemies of Christ do not play fair. If they're killers, they're liars. If they're liars, they're deceivers. If they're deceivers, they'll steal from you. If they're stealers, they'll covet your stuff. If they blaspheme, they will dishonor. Do you see what I'm saying? The enemies of Christ don't have a standard other than winning. So this word conferred teaches us something as well. It teaches us that this was probably a fairly lengthy discussion and we've gotten the boiled down version of that long private deliberation. The imperfect of the verb translated as conferred suggests that their deliberations lasted an extended period of time. So the nature of that Greek verb there tells us something about the timing. What shall we do to these men? So that is the focal point of their discussion. They confer together over this question, considering their options. It's a very serious matter to them, as we've already discussed. They sense this movement as a threat to the stability of their wealth and power. Their action will be expressed in some form of ruling toward Peter and John. The Sanhedrin has ignored Peter's claim, clearly, about Christ's resurrection. They're not even considering that. Even though many of these same councilmen... right? What we just read about, even though many of these same councilmen had participated in lying about Christ's resurrection, they had actually heard likely first or second hand accounts that Jesus came back from the dead, that the tomb was empty and they don't know how it happened. So it's worth pausing here and just emphasizing this really critical idea. Note the power of self-deception. It's really important. The self-deceived, and that can be you or me, what do we do? We create a fantasy world. A world that is not real. And we live in it like it's real. And we require the people around us to join us in our fantasy. That's what the self-deceived do. And we're seeing it on a grand scale right now with this whole pronoun nonsense that's present in our world. That people get to declare what their reality is, and force you to join them. Note the power of self-deception, brothers and sisters. Fear it in your own life. Ask the Lord to deliver you from any self-deception, any fantasy worlds that you may be creating for yourself. Each of us should, be, should take warning, uh, caution from this text. Commentary says <clears throat> if they had taken Peter and John seriously they would have had to ask the question they would not they would have had okay they would have had to ask the question what shall we do their concerns are entirely pragmatic thus they ask the question what shall we do with these people so it wasn't just a broad question what shall we do it's what shall we do with these people because they will not consider the possibility of Jesus as their Messiah, this is their preconceived notion, their, their personal maxim that they have in their mind, Jesus cannot be the Messiah. They miss the honor that God has placed upon the two men in their midst. They don't realize, not only do they not realize who Jesus is, they don't realize the honor and the dignity of the two men they are dealing with. Two of Christ's apostles. Two of the closest friends their Messiah enjoyed as he walked this earth. He bestowed a mantle of honor on these two men that he put on them. And the Sanhedrin missed it. Commentary said, if they would have yielded to the convincing, commanding power of truth, it had been easy to say what they should do to these men. And I have to pause and say here, If you don't have a copy of Matthew Henry's commentary of the entire Bible, please get it and read it. He has a way with words. It's so encouraging. Going on. They should have placed them... Here's what they should have done. They should have placed them at the head of their council and received their doctrine and been baptized by them in the name of the Lord Jesus and joined in fellowship with them. But when men will not be persuaded to do what they should do, It is no marvel that they are ever and anon at a loss of what to do. Their refusal of Christ, their refusal of His apostles, their refusal of His message leaves them stupid. They they literally cannot discern what needs to be done, even though it's pretty obvious. So, the text says, For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Again, Luke emphasizes to us what the council wished they could do. They would love to deny that it happened. They're clearly willing to carry out intentional deceit in order to advance their own selfish goals. They're perfectly willing to use their positions of power to maintain their positions of power and their wealth. Commentary says, there's a sense of helplessness and anxiety, but the leadership will still seek to counter what has taken place. Due to their rejection of God, they fail to see and appreciate what has been done. This rejection, however, has begun to fall on hard times because such miraculous acts are difficult to deny. So, as the Lord Jesus Christ increases the revelation of His glory and His power, these Stiff-necked Jews do the same thing. Except they just turn up their hardness of heart. They have to increase their hardness of heart. It's like Pharaoh. Or it's like their fathers in the wilderness did before them. What's their motive? Oh, I'm sorry. I have this bolded and italicized there for you to consider. Do you see that calculated intentional deceit is just another useful tool that the self-deceived will use to shamelessly further their goals, especially if they feel threatened. So this, again, should be a warning to all of us. And we see that there's a path that can be taken by those who are conformed to this world that will lead them to the spot where they don't even think twice about intentionally using total fabrication. To get what they want. <clears throat> the text says. So that it spreads no further among the people. Let us severely threaten them. That from now on they speak to no man in this name. So we're getting a behind the scenes look. At what their motive is. This is why they called the secret meeting. This is what they're after. Their motive is to stop the spread of the gospel. Amongst the people. To prohibit the name of Jesus. Is to be antichrist. This council has here, now they're going to shortly, publicly, on the record, set itself against God. The one who called Abraham, who wondrously saved these people out of Egypt and brought them as a people into the land that they now are poisoning with their lies. These are the people that saw the Red Sea part, that saw water from rock, bread from heaven, saw the Jordan part as they went through, that set up twelve stones, as a memorial to tell their children about, these are the people who are filling this place with lies. And their motive is to deny the Messiah that saved them. The commentary says, all their care is that the doctrine of Christ spread no further among the people. As if that healing institution were a plague begun, the contagion of which must be stopped. See how the malice of hell fights against the counsels of heaven. God will have the knowledge of Christ to spread all the world over, but the chief priests would have it spread no further, which he that sits in heaven laughs at. What is their tool? What is the devil's tool? What is the tool of those in sin not set free? It is fear, brothers and sisters. It is fear. And if you are in Christ, a fearless life, is yours. If you are in Christ, ask God for His Spirit and He will grant to you a fearless life. Every family brings fear with it. I have handed off fears to my children. My wife has handed off fears to our children. You have done the same. And each new generation has an opportunity to cast off these fears and to grow up in fearlessness and become like Peter and John. Bold and humble. Eloquent and clear and courteous. What is their tool? Their tool is fear. Let us severely threaten them. That's what they decide to do. Commentary says the word here used implies a very sore and heavy threatening as of the most grievous punishment upon the most heinous fact. So they... Who knows exactly what they said, but there were very serious threats that were brought against them. I want us to note the abuse of power by the Sanhedrin. They convict Peter and John of nothing. They do not continue an investigation into their actions. They actually let them go. They're essentially acquitted. And yet, they feel as if it's acceptable to resort to the use of power untethered from truth, aiming to achieve terror in order to silence God's people. The Sanhedrin wants the terror of their potential punishments to close the mouths of God's people. And surely in their minds, whether they said it out loud or not, they know that this Jesus was crucified because of their power. So behind it all is the threat of crucifixion. Behind it all is the threat that they would be turned over to the Roman governor Pilate like Jesus was. Commentary says, Here we may see what a deadly evil power void of the fear of God is. This is Calvin. For when that religion and reverence which ought doth not reign, the more holy the place is which a man doth possess, the more boldly doth he rage. Jesus said that all the blood of the prophets would come on that generation. And when we go through texts like this, I hope that you will see the rottenness that had expanded and infected the leadership of the Jewish people. And their refusal to repent in the face of solid evidence that Jesus is their Messiah. So they announced their ruling. They called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. So, this is a total ban on speaking about Jesus. They are to tell no one anywhere ever. It's a ban on public teaching. It's a ban on private conversation. It's a ban on speaking Jesus' name. Commentary says Peter and John are put under an absolute ban on speaking in a twofold sense. First, they are never allowed to speak to people about Jesus. They are entirely forbidden to speak to anyone about Jesus under any circumstances. Second, the ban concerns both speaking and teaching. The Sanhedrin prohibits both the public proclamation about Jesus as well as the regular explanation of the significance of his resurrection. Jesus and his resurrection are to be hushed up. Now, let's think about this. Consider the commandment that Peter and John just received from the Sanhedrin. It seems to me that this commandment is almost perfectly contrary to what Jesus had commanded them after His resurrection. Jesus says, Tell everyone, everywhere, always. Luke 24, Then He said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, this is Jesus speaking, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. So Peter and John, they were there, they heard this commandment from Jesus, and Jesus says, you saw all this happen, now go tell everyone that the Messiah had to die on the cross for the sins of His people, it was necessary for Him to suffer and die, and tell them that He was raised up from the dead, and in doing so, you will be preaching to them repentance and remission of sins. People can be forgiven of their sins through hearing the Gospel and believing in Jesus. People can live and understand what repentance is, the rejection of the life of sin and selfishness and pride and unbelief and the turning towards God and repenting takes us where? To the cross to confess our sins and to be forgiven. And to walk a new life. And to say no to the flesh. To say no to the devil. To say no to the conforming influences of this world. And to say yes to Christ our Lord on His throne. In His holy ways. It seems as though this commandment from the Sanhedrin is the exact opposite of what Jesus commanded them to do. And there's no justification whatsoever for their ruling. They don't say why. This is just raw power on display. Commentary says, We do not find that they give them any reason why the doctrine of Christ must be suppressed. They cannot say it is false or dangerous or of any ill tendency. And they are ashamed to own the true reason that it testifies against their hypocrisy and wickedness and shocks their tyranny. But they can assign no reason but their will there is not a greater service done to the devil's kingdom than the silencing of faithful ministers and putting those under a bushel that are the lights of the world. Again, Henry has a way with words, doesn't he? <clears throat> Verses 19 and 20, Peter and John replied to the Sanhedrin, and they teach us a lot. Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So note, instead of an initial outright statement refusing obedience to the council, first Peter and John lay out a reasonable question challenging their ruling. In this question, the apostles clearly and courageously state that the Sanhedrin is placing itself in conflict with God. commentary says, This statement implies that Peter and John believe that the Sanhedrin should accept the conclusion that God must be obeyed. That they have been commissioned by God to speak to other people about Jesus. That they cannot possibly accept the ban on speaking that has just been imposed. And that the prohibition to speak about Jesus opposes the will of God. As a principle, every devout Jew acknowledges the statement that in cases where there is a conflict between the will of God and the wishes of human beings... God must be obeyed rather than human beings. This principle was known both in the biblical and Jewish tradition as well as among pagans. The apostles forced the council members into the role of being judges against themselves. Now, of course, they don't agree with the idea that Jesus is God. But that is the situation that is taking place here. So then they go on. And with their next statement, the apostles place themselves on God's side, by stating clearly that they will obey God. Indeed, they have no other choice. They say we cannot but speak. So they go on and they give their answer of what they're going to do and what they're not going to do. Commentary says the second argument is formulated as an explicit rejection of the Sanhedrin's decision. They are very clear in their communication. Peter and John insist that they have no other option but to speak about what we have seen and heard. And this double negative here, we cannot not speak, has the force of a very strong affirmative. The apostles must speak about Jesus. And imagine Peter who denied Jesus three times and who was restored back to him. The idea of not following his Lord and what that misery was like for him before, he's never going to go there again. God has brought him back. He's seen his resurrected Lord. He an, he's an all-new man. And what do they testify about? The things that they have seen and heard. The disciples walked with Jesus. They observed his glory, his goodness, and his power. I'm sure you can think of many glorious episodes. His teachings the feeding of the 4,000, the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on the water, the speaking to the weather and commanding it, the healing of every kind of sickness, the deliverance from all kinds of demons raising the dead his kindness his weeping over Jerusalem his weeping over Lazarus they saw these things with their own eyes they didn't understand who he was while it was happening it was later after they discovered that he was the Messiah that they looked back and understood fully what they had observed God in flesh they saw the empty tomb they saw his resurrected body they saw him ascend into heaven they heard all of his divine teachings and commands. They had been with him. And their love and their gratitude toward him now controls their lives. Compelling them to go on loving others by continuing to spread the good news about who Jesus Christ is and what he has done and God's plan of salvation. The commentary says the reality of Jesus The meaning of his life and teaching, the significance of his death, his resurrection and his exaltation must not be hushed up. They cannot allow themselves to be silenced as a result of a gag order issued by human beings. When the exalted Jesus who sits on David's eternal throne at God's right hand had bestowed upon them God's spirit in whose power they speak and teach. No way we will not go and tell. So the question again is does this kind of loving boldness characterize your life or do the world's threats successfully successfully silence you? Another way of thinking about it, what's the biggest thing in your view? Is it what you have seen and heard of Jesus? Is it who he is, where he is, what he has done, what he is doing and how mighty and glorious he is? Or is it the threats of the world? Is it your... Bank account, is it what your friends think of you? Is it how many friends you have on Facebook? Is it fear of being um, whatever they do on Facebook? I don't even. Ew. What is it? What grips your attention? See, Peter and John were gripped by Jesus. Okay, so Sanhedrin, they have their answer and they give. So it's almost as if Peter and John have, have again given them an opportunity to repent. They've courageously set forth before them again, you're not on God's side. It's another chance to repent. What does the Sanhedrin do? Here's the text says. When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them. So it's it's like they're stuck in this this vain loop (laughs) of resisting God. And it's going to lead them to total destruction. It's likely that some of these young men, some of the children of these older men and grandchildren died in Jerusalem as a result of their hard-hearted rebellion against God with which they would not submit to God. Further threatened uh, commentary says, this surely includes informing the apostles of the social and legal consequences of their disobedience to the council. So this Greek word gets to like more specific kinds of threats. So maybe before they were a little more general and now they double down. Oh yeah, well what about your money? And what about maybe having some legal consequences? What about being put in a Roman prison? What about not having any money? So there's something to where the threats are even turned back up. So you see, an opportunity to repent is given to them. Another laying out of how they've sinned. And what do they do? They harden their heart further. This is the path of the rebellious. In response to the apostles' convicting question, and clear statement that they will obey God instead of the Sanhedrin's Lawless ruling, the Sanhedrin goes on in its stubborn sin. If the apostles' reply offers another opportunity to repent, then the Sanhedrin, like their fathers in the wilderness, harden their hearts once again and go on with further threatenings. Even though they let Peter and John go free, they do so, we see here, with angry reluctance, wishing instead that they had found some way to actually punish them. Surely... The halls of hell raged against the restraint required by the structure of Jewish law and the restraining influence of the people who glorified God for the healing. The council was still somewhat tethered down in their ability to bring forth persecution. And finally, we see that the Sanhedrin feared the people. The text says, because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done, for the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. So what we see here is that the Sanhedrin are at least partially controlled by by fear of the people and what the people will do. The Lord has caused quite a stir among the people in Jerusalem. It says they're all glorifying God because of this great miracle performed on a man who'd been born lame. You know, the longer you go on, the harder it is to heal something. And he had suffered like this for 40 long years before he was healed. They saw him day after day begging there by the temple. God chose to heal a man who was very well known as a lame beggar in Jerusalem. And now he's standing there whole before the council. And all the people have seen this, this is a big deal in Jerusalem right now. So the Sanhedrin are kind of reined in by this. So note their fear of the people Those who are controlled by fear want us to note this, will also use fear as a form of manipulation and control. So if you are a fearful person who can be controlled through manipulative techniques, you will do the same things to others when you want to try to get something from someone. Because it works, in your mind, it worked on you, it'll work on others. So these are forms of interaction that come from the sinful flesh, flow forth from devilish means, not from Christ. Now the good news here is that the fear of of the people is a God-ordained balancing force in society. God did make it like this. And this is to be balancing against all forms of tyrannical, abusive government. So the Scriptures reveal to us that It is a good thing when good people cause bad governments to be afraid of them. It is a good thing when good people, righteous people, cause bad, unrighteous governments to be afraid of them. Commentary says, As rulers by the ordinance of God are made a terror and restraint to wicked people, So people are sometimes by the providence of God made a terror and restraint to wicked rulers. Next, a biblically minded Christian people will always be a threat to the evil desires of rulers who set themselves against God. This is good for this to be in place. The people of God should be known for ending political careers of those who set themselves against the Lord. The Christian church, as a whole, should be known as a force that ends the political careers of people who set themselves against the Lord. As those who obey God when men command otherwise. The commentary says, If it so happened they abuse their honor, the Spirit declares there, as in a glass, What small account we ought to make of their decrees and commandments. The authority of the pastors and civil rulers hath certain bounds appointed which they may not pass. And if they dare be so bold, we may lawfully refuse to obey them. For if we should obey them, it were in us great wickedness. So praise be to God for His Word. Us, he teaches us, he instructs us in his ways, he is so good to teach us. A few questions that we may more closely meditate upon these principles. Some you've heard already today. Have you been with Jesus? What is your prayer life like? Do you have a plan for your prayer life? If so, how is it going? Do you have others in your life that will help you grow in being with Jesus? Who may ask you, based on the plan that you've asked them to ask you about, how's your prayer life going? How about your life in God's Word? Because you're not with Jesus if you're not praying and you're not in His Word. How's your life in God's Word, in your family, in your personal life? What if one of the disciples got up one morning and said, Jesus, I'll tell you what, I'm going to catch up with you in a a week or so. I'm just going to, you know, I love you. Look, don't take it personally, but I'm just going to chill over here by the lake and catch some fish. I'll, I'll catch up with you. See, that's what we're saying to Jesus when we refuse to bring ourselves to Him when we fail to bring ourselves to Him? What about worship? Not only private worship and family worship, but worship together here. I hope that you will see that all of these things are under the question of, have you been with Jesus? When you think about prayer, when you think about God's Word, when you think about worship, when you meditate upon His Word, It should be relational, not primarily educational. It should be relational. Yes, you're learning. It is education, but it is not primarily education. It's not so that your doctrinal understanding can improve. It's so that your improved doctrinal understanding can thrill your heart with love more for God. And you adore Him. And you enjoy Him. He is a person. And we have a relationship with Him. Have you been with Jesus? And, if, and if, if not, if you're not living up to your own plan, or if you don't have a plan for these things, it may just be that you're not a Christian. So that's the first thing to consider. If there's no fire in you, no desire in you to draw near to God, you're not a Christian. If there's no desire in you to draw near to God, you are not, you cannot be a Christian. So that's the first thing. Have you confessed your sins to God and trusted in Christ's death upon the cross for you and repented and drawn near to Him? Because if this happens, you've been filled with His Spirit and you've been united with Christ in His resurrection and nothing can separate You from Him, and when you are faithless, He is faithful, and He will never stop pouring His Spirit out in you, convicting you of your sin, and drawing you to Him. Drawing you to Him. Drawing you to Him. Okay, so if you are a Christian and you sense that in you, God drawing you to Him, and you're not praying regularly, you're not in His Word regularly, then why not? Well, I think there's a lot of different reasons, but as I was praying and meditating and wanted to give an answer to each one of us, I want you to write this down and pray this in your prayers. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Let's have that on our tongues and in our minds and in our hearts, brothers and sisters. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Remember from whence you've been delivered, Remember the glory that awaits us. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Pray and ask God. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Okay. Next. How might you be like those men in the Sanhedrin? It's a question we have to ask, right? One of the, one of the mistakes we make when we read scriptures is we don't put ourselves in the right spots. <laughs> Oh, I'm like Peter and John. Well, maybe you're like the guys in the Sanhedrin. Right? So that's the preacher's duty is to get us all into considering ourselves. And again, this power of self-deception has to be before your eyes right now. Because do you think these guys in the Sanhedrin went home and said, I am such a wicked devil. Or do you think they went home and said, I am doing God's will. So, some questions. The things that stand out about the Sanhedrin, they are controlled by fear. Fear of losing their power. Fear of losing their money. Fear of losing their influence over the Romans. Fear of the people. They had all this wealth and power and this exorbitant lifestyle they could live and all this, you know, they'd walk around and people would kind of bow down to them. They were f- afraid of losing all of these things. And they used Fear to control others. Brothers and sisters, if this is a part of who you are, who I am, may God show this to us. May He deliver us from this. Amen? So that, so that anytime we're together or anyone walks into our midst, there's not a fear thing going on. There's just love and joy and peaceful fellowship in Christ. True koinonia. Alright, another thing about the Sanhedrin I want you to see is they have pre-existing beliefs and desires and goals that they are unwilling to release. Okay? And they don't necessarily, all of them, have to be sinful. You may have, right now in your mind, a dream of something that you're after. And if you are unwilling to let that go for the cause of Christ, then you're like the Sanhedrin. Even if it's a good dream. Even if it's something that would be pleasing to God. So we have to let our lives go to God. And walk in whatever path He takes us down. And whatever things we have to let go of in that process, we need to let go of them. Oh, the Lord couldn't be calling me to this because of my dream over here. Well, maybe the Lord is going to have to destroy that dream so that you'll listen to Him. Whatever it might be. Next, in regards to the Sanhedrin, um, it's it's a tangent, but it's one that is worthy of emphasis again. Are you appropriately skeptical about the motives and the methods of tyrannical leaders? This is not conspiracy theory. This is not being judgmental of the hearts of others. This is using biblical truth to guide our understanding of where people likely are if they're acting in such a way as the Sanhedrin. They are likely acting in such a way as the Sanhedrin, using fear, using intimidation, trying to silence opponents. Does that sound familiar? If they're doing that, then we need to be appropriately skeptical of their motives and their methods. Okay, like the Sanhedrin, their motive is to keep power and their method was to lie. So it may well be that we have leaders right now who just want power and they just lie to us to keep it. You're not a conspiracy theorist if you believe that. You are actually a biblical realist if you think in that fashion. Now, we've got to be careful. Not everybody out there is like that, right? But we have to have a wise eye towards our leaders, especially if they're acting in tyrannical, fear-based silencing methods. All right, next. Are you like Peter and John? Now we get to the good part, right? Are you like Peter and John? Do you see yourself having boldness in tough situations? And yet, in a humble way, you don't get all fired up and rah, rah, rah. But you're there because you love Jesus. And you want this person who's resisting the gospel to also know salvation. And, And you stand up and you speak the truth. Now, do you notice how what they want to do is they want to separate Christ from goodness. And that's what secularism, that's what the lies of the devil want you to do as well. Go and be good. Go and be a part of healing. Go and be a part of serving. But don't you dare say that it's in the name of Jesus. You see? But see what the Bible says, what Jesus says, is everything is to be done in the name of Jesus and with Jesus on your tongue. Okay? Do not be deceived into the ways of this world. Do not be conformed by the silencing techniques of this world. Within one or two conversations, anyone who knows you should know that you love Christ and should know that any good you try to do is because you love him and you want to serve him, and he is your king who died for you. Within one or two conversations. So are you like Peter and John with this spirit wrought bold? You do understand this is not just because Peter and John were ES, TJ, whatever. They, they, it's not a person. I know I just, I just bothered a lot of personality people. It's not because of their personality. It's not because they're comfortable in a crowd. It's not because they like, you know, holding a microphone and being in front of people. It's because of the Holy Spirit in them that they have this boldness and this humility this miraculous blend of boldness and humility, of clarity and courtesy, this sets Christians apart. And this is by the Spirit, and it endures even when threatened. Even after they're threatened, it endures. It's steady because it's from Mount Zion in heaven because we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And we are made into people who cannot be shaken. There's a lot of shaking going on in this world right now. We can be those who are unshakable. Let's be like Peter and John were. Next, are you like the man who was healed? I got to tell you, I I identify more with him than anybody else in the story. Because I really feel like just, Jesus just came and just, I'm a wreck and he fixed me up and I'm just standing around and you know following other people, you know? And that's that's you know, that's but that is that you do you have the courage to say, yes, Jesus healed me. Jesus made me whole. Do you have the courage to be a piece of evidence in the courtroom for Christ? And and have you been healed? I mean, has God touched you and brought healing to your soul. You know, we're fragmented people apart from Christ. But we have heaven's peace that solves all of the world's mysteries for us. And even the ones that aren't solved, it's okay. Because Jesus knows. Okay. Are you asking God, final question, to pour out His Spirit upon you daily? Like I asked you to pray before, restore to me the joy of my salvation. I think an important prayer daily is for the Lord to pour out his spirit upon you. Now, you know Jesus will pour out his spirit upon you even if you don't ask, okay? But there's a way of receiving spirit that is active. We want to be participants. We want to reach up and take hold of God. That's a good metaphor for prayer. In fact, I read it this week in the scriptures. I think it was in Psalms, maybe in Isaiah. To reach up and take hold of God. The text says there's none who stirs himself up to take hold of God. That's prayer. That's asking for the Spirit. And when you pray this, pray that we would receive the Spirit without quenching or grieving God's Spirit. That we would be those who learn how to walk in the continual drenching of the Spirit like dew coming down daily on the ground and that we would not be quenching or grieving our Lord as we receive His Spirit. Let's walk as Christians in this world. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we do ask that You would restore unto us the joy of our salvation, that You would bless us to be like Peter and John, to be those who are with Jesus, and that our lives would be recognizable as Christian lives, those like Jesus. And that You would bless us by Your Spirit with boldness and humility to live out Your ways and to speak Your name, giving You the credit for any goodness, any good works that we do, no matter what the threats may be. Father, we do pray against ungodly church leadership ungodly civil leadership that is tyrannical and motivated by self-interest and we pray lord god that you would grant to us leaders in the church and the state who love you and who are bounded by your word and who do that service out of love for you and for your kingdom we lift all these things to you lord in jesus name amen